0: welcome listeners to another very special episode of the superstructure podcast this is scott ferguson of the money on the left editorial collective and today on the podcast we are going to be diving into a a keystone of western philosophy Mm -hmm. Uh, that is the text plato's republic and i am not going at it alone Thank goodness. Uh, I am joined today by my colleague and friend, um, Brendan Cook. Uh, and I'm here to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. I've enjoyed hearing the podcast, and it's
0: great to actually be a guest. I'm so excited that you're finally, finally joining us, um, not just behind the scenes as you usually do. Um, maybe we can start off uh, by. Just having you tell tell the listeners a little bit about your sort of professional background, your expertise, you know, what 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 brings you to to come, you know, read and, and talk about Plato's Republic with me here.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a question I've thought about a lot because I'm not really a specialist in Plato per se, not by any means. So I'm neither an am I. Instructor, <laughs> right, right. I'm an instructor at USF working with you, teaching humanities. And as an instructor rather than tenure track faculty, I really don't have a lot of time for research. And when I did, it was dealing more with early modernity, the Renaissance, Latin language rather than Greek. But in a way, I actually feel that I have one qualification to talk about the Republic, which is that in doing my reading of Renaissance literature, I'm encountering all the time the legacy of Plato, the legacy of ancient Greek political thought, precisely because it casts this long shadow over the history of the West. And so in some ways, I think I may even know more about the work's influence than people who may spend a lot of their life just focused on studying Plato which I think is really one of the themes of the Republic, actually, the nature of specialization, how everyone ends up only looking at one small part of the question. So I feel like I thought a lot about the influence Plato has had to really go back and trace that influence is interesting to me for that reason.
0: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of influence, uh, I want to take this opportunity, this, this kind of public opportunity to um, tell the world how much uh, you've been an influence on me and, and my thinking and my thought, and you were absolutely critical to um, kind of my reorientation and my own research and the argumentation and the thinking that led to my book. I mean, you're you're the one who, when I was trying to articulate certain criticisms and certain alt- alternative values and alternative forms uh in relationship to what we might call high modernity right or you know 19th and 20th and 21st century you're the first one many years ago now i believe it might have been at a birthday party uh, <laughs> um like a small child's birthday party who said well you know that sounds a lot like mm-hmm. the renaissance <laughs> that sounds a lot like a lot of the, the debates that were happening even before the Renaissance between the Franciscans and uh, the Dominicans. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for that and, and to just acknowledge it publicly. Even though this is your, the first time your voice is, is appearing uh, on, on one of our podcasts, you, your voice has been felt in my personal, but also our collective project for a really long time.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say, thank you.
0: So let's get into this. So as I said, this is a, something of a keystone of uh, Western philosophy. Plato's Republic. The 20th century philosopher Whitehead famously uh, wrote that the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato, and Plato of all of Plato's texts. Uh, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about the nature of his writing and. Uh, for those of those of you who are listening who are, are less familiar of course probably everybody's heard of plato but for those of you who are less familiar you know the republic is i think widely seen as if not the most important one of the most important texts for the entire western philosophical tradition and i think one thing to say to get us going is that you know this text i think is so fascinating and worth revisiting not necessarily for any particular claims that it makes, but rather that it it sets up a kind of set of frameworks and, and uh, a series of problems that seem to just never go away. Um, <laughs> I mean, clearly, Plato's text kind of did go away in, in what we call the, the, the West, right, for, for quite a long time, and we can maybe talk about that. But in terms of the kind of collective inheritance of this thing we call, this messy thing uh, called the Western tradition, you kind of can't get away from the Republic, which is not to say that everything that comes after it is is simply a footnote or is simply, um, you know, just one position Plato plays out in the Republic or something like that. But rather, there it, it opens up a series of really rich questions and problems that not only will I think the texts try to turn over in all kinds of ways, which are not always, very often, not straightforward. You know, sometimes are ironic, or as, you, as we were just saying before we started recording, are trolling, uh, to use a contemporary word. But um, but yeah, are are I think continuously not not solvable in any any straightforward way. So we'll want to talk about that that kind of field of philosophical problems and imagination. As we're unpacking this text i will say you know this is a money on the left editorial collective podcast so we're going to be talking about money and it turns out i mean it's funny we were going to record this a few weeks ago and we got held up for a variety of reasons and and i'm kind of glad we got held up because largely with your language knowledge and your research you we have uncovered all kinds of interesting things that have happened in terms of the translation of terms, you know, connected to money, um, they get translated as money. So we'll we'll want to talk about that. The other thing I want us to be focusing on today is the way that Plato's Republic uh, sets up broader kind of what we might call metaphysical questions like this about the structure of reality, how things work, how social processes necessarily or not necessarily unfold. And just to give you a little bit of a preview, one of the things that I I think we've talked a lot about in preparing for this conversation is what seems to be Plato's deep commitment to a certain kind of univocal metaphysics or a univocal way of setting out the problems that he's carving out for himself in this text. Univocal meaning literally speaking in one voice. It it implies a logic of um, kind of absolute sameness, whether you're talking about being or you're talking about truth or you're talking about justice. And then as we analyze on our various podcasts, especially through the various superstructure projects and spinoffs, we have a critique of this kind of univocal thinking that seems to flim-flam between univocal thinking and its opposite, equivocal or or radical difference thinking. And very often we will associate this to come back to the Franciscans with these medieval Franciscans who really thematized univocity and equivocity, it's, if you study Plato, you can see a lot of those same logics at work. That said, they're not the same. They don't function the same way and I, we don't want to reduce what Plato is up to and what he's struggling with in terms of univocity to what the Franciscans are up to. They're, you know, These are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years apart and they're, they're asking different kinds of questions. Uh, so I, I we're not here to say, oh, well, it's all univocal, so it's all the same. And nevertheless, there's still something going on here that that um, leaves a, a deep legacy in the Western tradition that, that I don't think has been uh, reckoned with enough.
1: Yeah, the way that I put it, as someone who's not an expert on this topic, and in a sense, this is a topic no one can really be an expert on because it is so big. What I would say is that the modern tradition, the Money on the Left Project critiques, this is not simply Platonism, but it is the product of a particular reading of Platonism during the late Middle Ages, during the early Renaissance. It's a particular reading of Platonism that may not be an accurate reading of Platonism, may not in every way be the one Plato intended, but this particular reading of Platonism does contribute to these modern attitudes that you've done so much to critique.
0: Right. That's really, really well said. So, okay. That's, that's a kind of big esoteric preview of where we're going. And if, you you know, if, if you're, if you're being thrown off and you're like sort of new to this, this world, don't worry, we'll get there. Now I want to, I want us to step back and, and just start doing baby steps. Right. So, um, who is Plato? Where did he live? When did he live? Do you want to try to take some of these basic questions on? Yeah, well, maybe the single most important
1: thing to know about Plato's own occupations is that he's living in the 4th century BCE Greek city-state of Athens. And Even though he's trying to think in terms of different types of society, different kinds of government, the immediate problems of Athens are always on his mind, and this Athenian system of democracy that so radically empowers average citizens, that's always on his mind in terms of critiquing it, as much as he's looking at the big picture. The immediate problems of Athens and Athenian democracy are always there, and this already established tradition of Athenian philosophy, because Plato was both the student of Socrates and he's also the teacher of Aristotle. So he's right in this tradition of Athenian philosophical thinking
0: right. and And philosophy is i mean you you can tell me if you have a more complex uh, account of this, but as I understand it, and this plays out in in many of uh, Plato's texts philosophy is sort of building itself out of, but in also in critical opposition to what's called sophistry or rhetoric, which, you know, both of those those terms have very bad (laughs) associations with them today. But, you know, essentially we're we're talking about traditions of argumentation taught and practiced uh, in very official capacities um, and for you know, yes, for individual and familial gain, but also for for making legal arguments, right? In political cases, and and right, it was it rhetoric or sophistry was um, kind of the art of persuasion of the day, and the philosophical tradition that Plato is trying to bring into being is clearly <laughs> coming out of that, like right? clearly indebted to that tradition, but philosophy the literally it means the love of wisdom and we'll get to this because this is very important for uh what's going on in the republic the love of wisdom the love of learning the love of knowledge the practice of philosophy is supposed to have a kind of higher calling a higher purpose that's not simply about making masterful arguments in a court of law or in a a political setting how'd i do there
1: I mean, that's exactly right. Like every intellectual movement, the sort of philosophical tradition we see with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, it's engaged with and critical of other intellectual traditions. And so the Sophists are very recent because they are creatures of Athenian democracy. Because every free man in Athens has the power of a legislator, the power of persuasion is correspondingly important. But as we also see in the Republic, they're Also in dialogue with the traditions of Athenian tragedy and comedy with writers like Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes, who are the only four who survive to this day, but there are plenty of others. And even further back, you have the poets of the Greek world like Homer and Hesiod. So all of these different traditions, the claims of poetry, drama, and rhetoric are all being interrogated in this sort of new type of discourse philosophy that they're trying to create.
0: Yeah and it's they're they're both being interrogated but they're also being reflexively redeployed and synthesized right too it's not just we're different from all y'all it's it's no philosophy is is its own kind of mixture right its own kind of construction taking up the tools of each one of these while trying to make the claim that what we're up to as philosophers is different than what you all are ultimately Uh, oriented toward. And in one
1: way, we could say that's really what Republic is about. Superficially, it's about the question of justice, and it's often called on justice in the ancient world. But as with so many texts, what it's really about is itself. It's interrogating the nature (laughs) of philosophy and its relationship to Greek drama and poetry and rhetoric preceding it.
0: Right. So, before we kind of get into what we might call the voice of the text, the position from which it speaks, tries to make meaning, pose problems, engage a reader or, you know, somebody watching it being performed, potentially, maybe we can talk a little bit about this figure of Socrates. So, uh, Socrates, as you suggested, was a historical figure, right? He, He... positioned himself in a particular way in the world. How would you describe the figure of Socrates? And how do we know about Socrates is another question.
1: This is very interesting because there are so few documented sources on the life and views of Socrates. I mean, mostly because so much ancient literature is just lost generally. As I say, we've lost all but one of the comic playwrights, all but three of the tragic playwrights. But part of the problem of knowing about Socrates is he seems to really have been committed to not writing anything. He had these very principled arguments against setting things down in writing, which Plato recapitulates by, of course, setting them down in writing— (laughs) <laughs> and as a result, we're at the mercy of those who wrote about him. So we have the accounts of Xenophon, who was one of his students. we got Plato's accounts. We have a very unfavorable presentation of Socrates by the playwright Aristophanes in the clouds. And there are probably other equally biased accounts that we've now lost But at the same time, it's always interested me, even just reading Xenophon, Plato, and Aristophanes for all of their different agendas, you do sort of get a consistent picture of the kind of person Socrates was. This habit of Socratic irony, of pretending to know nothing, of interrogating people by trapping them into self-contradiction. They all agree on that in a way that one really feels one knows the person. Even the accounts of his very distinctive physical appearance, the snub nose, have come down to us fairly consistently.
0: Yeah, I want to pause right there and just introduce a term. Right, so there's this Socratic, we We might call the Socratic method or the Socratic way is sometimes called the the negative way, right? And it's it's sort of aligned with what people in in the hermeneutic and theological traditions will will call the apophatic mode, right? The thinker. <laughs> The philosopher the, the whoever whoever is doing engaged in this knowledge practice doesn't necessarily purport to be able to positively speak truths but instead is very good at poking holes, finding contradictions, hypocrisies um, in other claims to truth, and somehow the kind of dynamic process of peeling away all of those all of those seeming truths have a have a supposed truth value in themselves.
1: And we see this in the dialogues of Plato when Plato imagines these conversations involving Socrates. But I guess my point is because Plato's dialogue, including Republic, they're so obviously fictionalized, they're so obviously the imaginative creations of Plato— There'd be no reason just based on those to think that Socrates really used this method were it not that Xenophon, an entirely different student of Socrates, gives us a little conversation and it's the same kind of thing. The seeming ignorance, the asking the questions, and not necessarily proving Socrates doesn't prove that he knows anything, but he proves that through the conversation at least Pericles doesn't know anything. So there's at least that confirmation that however much Plato is presenting a, a fictional story in his dialogues it really is based on what for his contemporaries would have been the recognizable methods and sort of language the voice of socrates they would know
0: and maybe one last little detail i think about socrates before we start talking about plato and plato's dialogue form which you've already kind of previewed socrates's demise right is marks his legacy Right. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about how, how his life ends? This is very important for Plato, very
1: important for Plato. So in, in his lifetime, so Plato is Socrates' student, he's a generation later, he's telling these stories about Socrates through these dialogues. It's all shaped, everything is shaped for his first readers by the knowledge of how it's going to end, the death of Socrates, the condemnation by the people of Athens by this democratic Athenian system of which Plato seems to be so implicitly critical. There are are many dialogues like the Euthyphro, where Socrates' death isn't directly mentioned, but in this particular story, he's about to go into the courthouse to be put on trial and ultimately condemned to death. And so the death of Socrates is in a way, for Plato, the most important fact about him, even when, as in *Republic*. It never comes up. This is always where his story is going.
0: And his his um, death, he's not only sentenced to death, but he makes a choice, right? He, he chooses death rather than capitulating to the demands of the polis.
1: Well, and here we have no choice but to assume that Plato's account is accurate. Uh. Because... <laughs>
0: And it's a
1: heroic one. As opposed, to, as opposed to the case of his method of conversation, where we see other people like Xenophon attest to it, and in his own way parodying it in the clouds, Aristophanes does. The only real account of this, of how the details of how this goes down, is Plato's, one of his early dialogues, The Apology, where we see Socrates is, at first, the way the Athenian court system works, is that the free men crowd in there, they crowd into the courthouse, And first they vote to decide whether you're guilty or not of what's been charged. And so Socrates has been charged with teaching people not to believe in the old gods and corrupting the young men of Athens. And so first they hold a vote on whether he's guilty of this. And according to Plato, and this is all just Plato's account, they barely find him guilty. The voting men in the room barely find Socrates guilty. It's very close. And now it's come, it's the time to decide the punishment. According to Plato, Socrates becomes more combative at that point. He becomes less conciliatory. He almost goes out of his way to antagonize the jury. You're supposed to offer a sort of punishment as because they vote on which punishment you get. The defendant, if they've been found guilty, says, I'd like this punishment. The prosecution always calls for death. And the whole idea is to propose something that the... People, the voters will choose instead of death. And Socrates has got to know, since they barely voted it to hold him guilty in the first place, he can propose a really light penalty he'll get off. But according to Plato, Socrates proposes that his penalty should be free food and board for life. Which so antagonizes them, according to Plato, that the vote to give him the death penalty passes by a greater margin than the vote to find him guilty in the first place. Some of the people Uh. who had originally felt he was innocent of the charges were so antagonized and alienated by his change of tone in the sentencing that they vote to convict him. So yes, according to Plato, this was a deliberate death. Socrates chose to die. We see that in other ways too. Later, he has opportunities to escape because the Athenians don't really want to kill him they'd be happy to see him just go off in exile. So yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that in Plato's presentation of it, the death of Socrates is a deliberate choice. It's a lesson for his students. It's a lesson for the people of Athens.
0: Yeah, and it functions as a sacrifice and a heroic one. We could say, you know, thinking about an overall kind of tone and structure of tragedy, right? It colors all the dialogues with, with that sense of fate, you know, I mean, it makes me think of like certain really fatalistic, you know, streaming shows, <laughs> you know, like better to call Saul. We know it's not going to end well, right?
1: Yeah, the people of this era, they were the ones who called it irony. And the original meaning of that was the knowledge of where things are going in the sense that they used it in Athenian drama. It's when you know more about the fate of the protagonists than they do and that knowledge of where it's heading retrospectively colors
0: everything else. Right, so there's, we're already getting into the complex of voicing, right? The, 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 the way of making meaning that, uh, it, that structures Plato's dialogue. There's so many levels and layers of meaning and countermeaning and reference. And yeah, maybe, so we've been saying, right? He writes dialogues for the most part, right? And these are, these usually involve two or more characters right? Mm -hmm. Discussing important issues, important topics um, with usually in the service of uh, advancing philosophy, the love of wisdom, as opposed to any other prevailing school or method or common form of, of knowledge making. And often Socrates is featured as, you know, the star of the show, the lead character who's kind of um, <laughs> begrudgingly convening uh, <laughs> these conversations, so yeah, what, what can we say about the dialogue form? So the Republic is a dialogue, right? And there's multiple, multiple characters. But what would you say about the Platonic dialogue?
1: Yeah. At first, I'll just add that, as you know, but I'll say for our listeners that the Republic is, in a way, it's a narrative. About a dialogue, because the whole thing is Socrates recounting a conversation and what different people said to him. So we're hearing Socrates' recollection of what they said the whole time. So there's an interesting extra layer there. But yeah, the dialogues of Plato, they don't simply have the problem that you would normally expect. And you'll see this in other ancient philosophies. So the Roman Order, Cicero does dialogues too. And all of these have the interpretive challenge that you have multiple characters, often real people, speaking in their own voice. And the moment you do that, there's already room for lots of wonderful irony. When you have a well-known, famous person say something that either is or isn't associated with them and so on. You've got this game of wondering what's the author's opinion, what opinion are they actually trying to expose through the characters, but things get harder with Plato's accounts just because of who the main character is. It's not just that there are a bunch of people, none of whom is Plato, talking about these issues, but one is Plato's beloved teacher and master and someone who is known for having, of course, very different opinions, presumably... Even from Plato, I mean, I mentioned this. In one of his dialogues, Plato dramatizes Socrates' opposition to writing. He has Socrates explain why writing is bad in all kinds of ways. And so you've got to know... This is the Phaedrus. Yeah, you've got to know Plato doesn't agree with this. You've got to know he's not signed on to this argument completely because you're reading a piece of writing. So his (laughs) opposition to Socrates is signaled there explicitly, or rather implicitly, but yeah. So even before we get to the unique problems of Republic, and it does have, as I think we agree, at least one unique problem, you have this problem already that everything Plato does, he's never speaking in his own voice. And whenever he has Socrates speak, you're always wondering, is, to what extent is Plato using Socrates as an author insert to advance his own agenda? Or to what extent is he in a way having Socrates speak in order to criticize his old master? Is something like the Phaedrus the equivalent of Marx criticizing Hegel by working through Hegel's ideas? And we're left wondering about that the whole history of the interpretation of the Platonic Dialogues is trying to resolve questions like that.
0: So would it be fair to say that this is beginning to tease out the difference between what might be called Socratic irony and Platonic irony?
1: Yeah, I think we could say that because the Socratic irony is, it's present within the dialogue itself because Socrates will do his familiar type of questioning where he'll pretend to know nothing, he'll play dumb, but right, surrounding it, surrounding it is this sort of meta-irony, right? An irony embedded into the structure of the work itself, which is especially obvious in the Phaedrus, but as we'll see, it's just as obvious in the Republic, There, too, there's a tension, a tension between what the characters are saying and the form of the work in which they're saying it, which I think is a big part of that platonic irony.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the many, many reasons. I mean, you know, any text is kind of endlessly interpretable, but I think that is one of the key reasons why platonic dialogues lend themselves so readily to multiple interpretations and right there have been a series of you know identifiable often self-identified schools that have you know their Plato. you know they have their read they have their take on what particular texts mean what relationships between texts mean whether you can read relationships between texts at all Do you want to introduce a little bit of that? Well, yeah, and I think the best way, though, to introduce it
1: is is just to narrow in on the Republic. I said that, like the Phaedrus, it's one of the most difficult ones, perhaps even more so. And one reason is that, like the Phaedrus, this is a dialogue where Socrates, who does do most of the speaking, he's a central character, he's very charismatic, very articulate, where Socrates explicitly critiques the kind of work you are reading. In the Republic, Socrates attacks not just writing, as he did in the Phaedrus, but he attacks poetry, which he defines, and the word can often really just mean fiction in Attic Greek. He defines as anything... Poem is really, he says, doesn't have to have meter and a particular rhythm the way Homer does. What really makes something a poem is when you have a bunch of fictionalized characters all speaking in different
0: voices.
1: (laughs) Or he talks especially how bad it is when poets simulate characters losing their cool, characters getting angry or upset, which also happens within the dialogue too. So it's especially bad when you dramatize not just different points of view, but emotions and things like that. So it's unusually difficult in that way. And you want to talk about interpretation. One thing that's worth noting right now is many of the people who consider themselves faithful interpreters of this dialogue don't conclude from it that you shouldn't do poetry or that you shouldn't do uh, any form of writing where different fictionalized characters give their little speeches. So that's a clue to how some schools of thought have interpreted this. But more specifically, and this is what I think you're really getting at, this has the unique problem. Again, I'm not a Plato expert, but it's the only dialogue I know of where in addition to having Socrates, and he's saying things that may conflict with the very form in which this is being said, Socrates explicitly endorses lying. He says very (laughs) early on in Republic that you shouldn't always tell people the truth. He compares giving someone the truth when they can't handle the truth when the truth might hurt them to giving someone a dangerous weapon when they might hurt themselves or someone else. He says that early on and later on as it goes, we give other examples of him endorsing lying to people. So even if we were to wave away the problems with the other dialogues, even if we're just to say, yep, Socrates is just Plato, whatever he says is what Plato is straight up telling us, he said he believes in lying He talks about lying to other people. Why isn't he lying to us? And so you mentioned trolling earlier on. There have certainly been schools of thought over the years, even into the 20th century, that have tried to argue that really, really when Socrates is speaking in the Republic, he's hoping you will be smart enough to see through what he's saying. He's saying these things to test his listeners. Maybe they fail by taking him seriously when they shouldn't. But the real goal of this is not for you to uncritically accept what Socrates says, but be one of the people who sees through the lies, sees through the bad reasoning. So in that sense, maybe Plato wants you to move beyond Platonism in that interpretation or what's known as Platonism, because if you see flaws in this reasoning, if it seems unreasonable, that's the point.
0: Right. So, you know, one of the big... I mean, you could call it a tension, you could call it a contradiction, you could call it a hypocrisy, you could call it an irony, you could call it any number of things, is this, yeah, this opposition between uh, a sense that (laughs) fictionalizing is bad and it should not be part of any just order and fictionalizing in the form of lying is good and should definitely be at the foundation of any just order.
1: Absolutely. So that's one of those tensions. This is another example of what I think, yes, you call platonic irony as opposed to merely Socratic irony.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So let's now pushing closer and start talking about the Republic. What, Where does the Republic uh, fit in terms of Plato's known of? Oh, well, that's a really good question. I would
1: only defer to say that even the experts aren't really sure. They argue about all the time about whether it's earlier or later. And I mean, the truth is, I think that anybody who's too certain is kidding themselves because the history of these texts is so jumbled. And we also have to account for the possibility because it is so long. It is the second longest of all of Plato's dialogues, which is why this podcast is going to run so long on it (laughs) that it's very likely Plato wrote different parts of it at different times. And so it's somewhere in the middle, probably. It doesn't feel in all kinds of ways like his first venture in this form. There's all kinds of reasons to think the apology is a very early example of Platonic thought, and it's probably not one of the very last, but somewhere in the midst of this philosophical project, which, and maybe this is the moment to mention this, you said earlier there are some schools of thought who say there isn't even a Platonic project. The Neoplatonists of late antiquity were sure that every one of these dialogues, each of these works was its own little world with its own rules, and in each one, Socrates symbolized something different the other characters do. Their whole thought was that if Plato wanted you to put these all together, he would have written one gigantic work, right? It might have been like Homer's Odyssey or Iliad for philosophy. He wrote them separately because he wants it to be taken on its own. But if we do assume there is a platonic project and I can't help but feel there is. I can't help well, but Well there want was to an see.
0: institution, right? He had a He, he founded he the founded academy. Yes. The academy, which is a, a you know, a kind of philosophical university. But but I and others can't help but see how
1: similar problems, similar concepts are being addressed in the different dialogues. I can't resist seeing the Republic's attempt to address certain ideas being paralleled in dialogues like the Euthyphro or the Fido or even the Apology in different ways. As part of doing this, I was going back and studying the Greek text of the Apology as well. So it, everyone's thoughts change. No one is consistent. But I do feel that we can still talk about a Platonic project of a series of problems, related problems he's working on. And this sits
0: somewhere in the middle of that so how how are we going to go about explaining to the to the uninitiated what this dialogue is up to? who are the characters? Uh, how is it structured? how does it unfold? You know, I think it's worth talking about the opening uh, the opening and the ending at, at some point. Um, but yeah, I don't want to get lost in too many details right off the bat, but t- to to kind of sketch what how would you sketch what this dialogue is up to well i would more
1: think about what yeah what it's about generally so just leave it for now that plato gives us a fictionalized account not of socrates having a conversation with people but of socrates telling us about a conversation he had with some people principally actually for whatever it's worth two of them are brothers of plato so plato's not in the dialogue but two of his brothers, who are also Socrates students, are talking to him. So Socrates has a really long conversation to try to break down the problem of justice. And in the ancient world, now none of these things are really given titles, but it was often known in the ancient world as on justice, because Socrates is trying to tackle the problem of what is justice, because there's a tradition which develop, is developed in the Platonic project, that there are four basic virtues that inform our lives, and justice is one of these four. So he's trying to figure out the nature of justice, and that, that's one reason we'll often say that this is a probably a middle dialogue, not an early one, because this isn't just the Socrates who questions people, who shows that they don't know anything either and leaves it there. This is a Socrates who is trying to create a positive conception of justice. And the reason it ends up being so long comes back to an essential Platonizing idea is that Socrates feels that this concept of justice, which you could also call righteousness, might be another English rendering of this, this concept exists both in every individual But it's also social, and and it's implied that it would exist in sort of social organizations in between. There's justice in the city, there's justice in the individual, probably justice in the family or the neighborhood too. So it is so long because to really solve this problem, once we even get to the point where Socrates is committed to trying to solve the problem, he's got to shift back and forth between these problems of justice writ large in society and justice in the individual. So I'd say, frankly, that once Socrates has successfully explained what justice is in the individual, what justice is in the state, and he's explained why these two problems have to be interconnected, he's done. It's as short as it has to be to deal with that problem and everything that comes
0: up along the way. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. So it, essentially, he is creating connections between painting a kind of picture between justice and injustice at the micro level, which for him is the individual, it's not bacteria. And, And then at the macro level, which, just to remind, to get everybody on board here, you know, uh, Brendan used the term city, and then he t- used the term the state, right? So this is this is a context that's, you know, this is not the Roman Empire. This is not a modern nation state, right? This is a uh, this ancient Greek system of of city states, which were, you know, we could call them sort of quasi autonomous. Like these were the fundamental the city state was the fundamental political unit that was recognized at the time. And so when he's, when he's trying to think about the macro, he's thinking about how is the city-state organized. And of course, then there's a, you could call it like a super macro, right? Which is the cosmos, right? And so the ordering of the cosmos needs to align with the ordering of the macro uh, city-state, which needs to, align with the ordering of the soul, the individual soul?
1: I would say myself, I don't see as much about the cosmic order in this dialogue myself. Just at the end. Yes, there there are nods to that problem, but it doesn't really thoroughly hash it out. But I'd say here that actually superstructure host Will Beeman here made what I think is one of the most interesting critiques of the whole dialogue, which is Socrates really doesn't attempt, even attempt to understand a political order, to imagine a political order beyond the city-state. Beyond the city-state, there are just other city-states. There is no attempt to imagine an over... Other than maybe the cosmic order, which is not really political. There's no attempt to imagine a political order that assumes and contains all these city-states.
0: No, and the only kind of relationality that you see articulated is a certain a certain inevitability of economic competition right which can either either be articulated as mutually beneficial trade or a war right but no no kind of higher political order other than that
1: no the city state that's as macro as the macro end of it gets,
0: yeah, just yeah. as the
1: individual is the lowest on the bottom
0: so the dialogue which as we said is 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 a is unique in the sense that it's actually socrates telling us about this time when right mm. so it it happened in the past and this happened and that happened and i said it it doesn't start with so you know i you know i i bumped into this group of people and said what's justice right that's not how it unfolds it it unfolds in a in a kind of dramatic scenario um, that feels characteristically platonic in its, in its dramatic structure. How would you describe how Plato kicks this dialogue off and maybe why, why it's important? Like, so I'll just say this, Plato has a, has a tendency to start his dialogues in ways that feel sort of like in medias res, a little bit incidental, and you feel like you're, especially, and I remember being a freshman reading Platonic dialogues and feeling like, ah, get to the point, right? You know, what's the what's the issue? But in the meantime, there's tensions, there's pleasantries, there's, you know, I was going out of town or I was coming back from from this or that place. So how does how does the Republic start?
1: Well, and this is one thing I really enjoy about it a lot. And the first time I read it, the truth is I read it over 30 years ago, the very first time I tried to crack this open. And one of the only things that stuck with me at that age was the opening because in a sort of a a dramatized way, in a very narrative way, I think you see Plato laying out the themes that are going to be dealt with in so much more detail later. There's Socrates is at the home of this wealthy man, Cephalos, and he has an interesting conversation with him where they talk Not really in a philosophical way, just a conversation about the nature of growing old, the nature of passion and desire. Cephalus talks about how life is easier now that he has less of a sex drive. And they also talk about generational wealth, which is a really important theme in the Republic. Cephalus talking about his grandfather's attitude towards money, the guy who made versus most of the family money versus his father's attitude and his attitude towards money and whether you need to have money when you're old to be happy. And spoiler, you do. So there is there's, there's, <laughs> this sort of a really easy, an, an easygoing opening that implicitly lays out the themes that are going to be hashed out very explicitly later on. And then I think you're also thinking he eases us further into the narrative with kind of, a, I guess, a parody of the older Platonic dialogues, if they are older, where Socrates just shows someone he doesn't know anything, because you have the sophist Trasymachus there, who, he's the one who gets all worked up and angry, even though later Socrates denounces stories where characters get worked up and angry, and where Trasymachus (laughs) tries to find justice, and Socrates does his normal thing of showing that Trasymachus doesn't know what he's talking about. And so the inciting incident in this, I think this is what you're getting at. The moment that kind of turns us from not being one of the earlier dialogues, it would end there normally with Socrates showing that Trasymachus doesn't know anything, is when these two students of his, the Brothers of Plato, say, well, that's not good enough for us. We're sick of this old routine. We've seen this old movie before. Instead of just showing that other people can't define justice, we think you can. We want you to really explore it and explain it. So... It, it almost like that's really the frame; those conversations in the first books, and the the division into ten books is a later thing. Anyway, it wouldn't be Plato's, but those early conversations that lead us into the more in depth discussion later on. Or what are you thinking about with the opening? What stands
0: out to you? I was thinking about all of that. In fact, you you exceeded my expectations and are and are, are teaching me here about some of the things you're you're pointing out. I'll, I'll circle back and say. The very very beginning, right? Even before we get to Cephalus's home, right? Socrates tells us that he he was on the way back from a festival, Mm -hmm. and it was a new festival, right? With new rituals, and and it you know I I, maybe you have a more uh, a a more exacting sense of of how these various rituals were are connected to one another, but we're, we're also told that um, later on in the that evening, there's going to be another ritual, another, a kind of a, a fancy new uh, horseback torch relay kind of uh, race or, or or pageant or something like this, right? And I think it's it seems incidental. It seems in medias res, it seems like, oh, yeah, I just happened to be, right? But what is he doing there? At least the, my read is he's already showing us how he's already winking at the, the reader or the, the listener or the watcher of the, the performance that world-making and imagining <laughs> is happening all the time, right? And, and not just repeating old rituals, but new ones are being invented all of the time. And we can get, either get in on that <laughs> and fabulate and construct um, in ways that are going to serve the love of wisdom, And in the case of this dialogue, justice, or we can just kind of passively accept whatever new inventions, whatever new, whatever new poetry, whatever new music, whatever new, you know, pageantry and ritual the society is creating for us at any given time.
1: Yeah, I I agree completely. I think the important thing is that if you want to look closely enough, Plato has tried to encode everything in that summary, like a little play. A play before the story starts, all of the themes. The only thing that I would add is I think it's quite deliberate. Remember that Plato is always at pains to distance himself from this charge that Socrates was somehow there to destroy the old Athenian religion. Socrates had been condemned for teaching not people not to believe in the traditional religion. So I'm not talking about new festivals or anything, but in many ways, Plato sees himself, I think, generally as a philosopher who is trying to confirm many intuitions of non-philosophical people. And so he's attempting to extend to extend the insights of traditional Athenian religion, or at least that impulse. He's trying to honor that impulse, even as he purifies it and questions it and criticizes
0: it. So I, I think it will behoove us to try to proceed in a way that is doing, doing the most justice to what, uh, this is so hard to actually do, but is trying to do the most justice to what Plato's text is up to and maybe uh, hold back some of the criticisms, but eventually I'm just gonna have to start criticizing. Um, but I guess maybe before we start doing that dance, I will say that we have elements and impulses of this text that we would want to affirm, and then there are elements and impulses in this text that I, I think are very much worth critiquing and and continue to haunt and plague us today. Yeah, I don't know, would you add anything up to, to that? I'd
1: say that I think we mostly agree I might be slightly more favorable to Plato than you, but I think I agree that I can both see all kinds of things that are worth redeeming in this text. There are moves that are really impressive, but you're absolutely right. You can trace a direct metaphysical lineage. You can trace a direct line from some of the things he says in the dialogue to some of the worst political ideas that are out there today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and I, I should say this there are plenty of critical lineages that overtly call out, you know, what, what Plato is up to in this dialogue and link it to sort of modern totalitarian regimes and things like this, right? And, and you know, sure, we can note that in passing, you know, that we're not a totalitarian apologist um, by any stretch of the imagination, but that I think what we have to say is pretty – our our criticisms or our trepidations are are unique in this way, right? They're not the standard ways of holding this text at, at, kind of at a remove or, or, or looking at it critically.
1: Certainly, some of the people who criticize this end up still embracing, I think, some of the ideas we might feel are the most pernicious about it. They're often, when people associate this with totalitarianism, they're drawn into a very surface reading of the text, They're maybe not aware of some of the irony, both on Socrates' part, as he's engaging in these intellectual exercises, but also some of the irony of Plato himself. You know, this is a dialogue where a character says he believes in lying to people. And so if you take everything seriously, you're going to go to some strange places. But no, our critique is much deeper. I think one of the best ways to read this text anyway is just to look Not at any one specific claim, but at the methods and the assumptions that are everywhere. And some of these methods and assumptions, as I say, they're there in other platonic dialogues too. So even if Socrates is trolling us in this particular dialogue, even if the point here is to sort of play a game with Plato's brothers to see whether they can see through him, it's hard to let him off the hook for things that he's doing in every other one of these dialogues. Sort of, maybe this is the time to explain that my sort of interpretive rule for understanding Plato's presentation of Socrates is something I like to call the Kaufman rule. And here I'm thinking both of the filmmaker Charlie Kaufman, who's made such films as I'm thinking of Ending Things, Being John Malkovich, an adaptation, and also of the 1970s comedian Andy Kaufman. And what I always like to say is that Plato may be Charlie Kaufman. Like the maker of, I'm thinking of ending things, or being John Malkovich, Plato may be interested in creating a story that undermines itself, that leaves you uncertain of where the narrator begins and the characters end. But at the same time, Socrates is not Andy Kaufman. He's not doing what the comedian Andy Kaufman did, In creating this whole persona for himself, (laughs) playing this character for years and years when he doesn't really believe any of it, when it's not his authentic being. We have to believe that Socrates is serious about these ideas, about these positions, if he keeps presenting them in one dialogue and the
0: next. Yeah, and I would say to come back, there's there are certain habits of posing problems, even if they lead to paradoxes. There's certain habits of posing questions and posing problems and playing out um, their their various possibilities and dead ends and, and supposed, you know, supposed answers that that sticks in Plato's works as opposed to just you know any positive articulation like, you know. Lying is good, lying is bad, right? Which you'll get in, in the same text.
1: Well, yes, his, his, his very love of presenting us with these contradictions and these paradoxes tells us something about Plato's way of thinking that he's not going to exactly. be able to get out of and disown. The more he tries to demonstrate his own irony and self-knowingness and reflexivity, the more he's owning up to this way of
0: thinking. It's, right, it's a way right, of thinking
1: right, right. you own the more you try to disown it.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to try, and you can tell me if you want to, you know, complicate this, I'm going to try in, in a sort of sweeping gestural way to offer, offer an analysis or a reading of how we get from this, this kind of opening gambit that, you, that we've been discussing so far to this broader question of what is justice because at a certain point that emerges as the key weighty question of the of the dialogue and that's what we're trying to figure out so the way i would describe this is moving through cephalus and then cephalus and and uh other characters as they as they start to tease out questions that inevitably lead to the question of what is justice, what Plato's text is doing is showing us to a certain extent, the ways in which to just pose this question at the level of what the individual does is insufficient. So what I would say is, yes, I agree that he's sort of playing out a little a little playlet right a little back and forth to show us that this is not a early purely negative way apathetic um dialogue in this you know in this more pure, pure socratic mode but at the same time i think he's staging a transition he's staging a a, re, a reframing to say you know, it turns out we, we get ourselves, when well, we have these precepts that we've inherited from tradition about what constitutes the right life, the good life, or the just life, when we just follow these precepts, like speaking truth and paying debts, paying your debts at the end of your life, right, and having a clean slate, when it's just presented as an individual choice or an individual problem, that's not enough. And that justice is actually a macro problem. It's a macro problem of the city-state.
1: Yeah, and this gets to what I mean about the method that I do think you see consistently throughout the Platonic dialogues. Plato, as I say, tends to be someone who wants to confirm the intuitions of ordinary people, more often than not, and build on them, build on intuitions that are in the structure of language. So, we see this in an earlier dialogue, probably earlier the Euthyphro, where there's this question of devotion, the word devotion, and Socrates picks at the fact that you can talk about being a devoted son or daughter, and being a devoted follower of the gods. So, ordinary language uses this one word for these two different situations and concepts, this must be related. Let's figure out how they're related. So in Republic, there's this same obsession with the fact that when you talk about this, justice or righteousness, whichever you want to call this, dikaiosyne, it can be applied to an individual or the state. You can say this is a righteous city. You can say this is a righteous man or woman. So one reason that he feels we got to look at the macro and the micro is that ordinary language is already suggesting it. There's an intuition that people have that these things are connected, otherwise they wouldn't apply the word in both cases. And this gets us to Plato's method. Sometimes this ends up being called the theory of the forms. That whenever one word, and this is explicitly said in Euthyphro, whenever there's one word applied to a bunch of different situations, there's got to be something in common. And if you could find out what that common denominator was in all of these situations where that word is invoked, then you would understand its essence. You'd know what it really is. So even as he wants to understand justice, he wants to demonstrate this theory that whenever you use this word in different places, you're going to find this common core.
0: Yeah, and maybe, I mean, then this becomes a question of, is that common core supposed to be univocal? Is it supposed to speak in one voice, even as it's speaking in many ways?
1: It's in danger of being univocal. It really is. I think we agree that this is one of the places where you can certainly read Plato in a critical way. There's none of this sense, at least As it's presented perhaps in Aristotle's critique of Plato's ideas about the analogical character of words, that there is some way you can strip down all that beautiful difference and variety from words and get at that clean, abstract essence of things. The only extent I think that Plato even allows for an element of variety. He allows for something other than kind of a stark, flat univocity is in the idea that whenever we use a word like justice, we talk about a just person or a just city, these uses are all going to be slightly different because none ever gets at this pure, abstract reality. So that's the only thing that saves him.
0: Yeah. So it's, again, it's not a positive, it's never a positivist univocity, right? That's a kind of release valve for him in a way. Uh, Maybe we should... Say a little bit more. So you, you mentioned the forms and you're mm-hmm. talking about Plato's commitment across his dialogues. And of course, Plato scholars will tell you that the forms are talked about in different ways in different dialogues. Of course, and,
1: right. Because he's um, developing his theories about them.
0: Right. Um, and of course, it's, they're sent through the ringer of platonic irony. and you know, you, you can ne- There's no pure access to these supposedly pure forms. Um, so in English... We off, most often refer to, to to these as forms, and they're supposed to be the you know the kind of abstract shape that certain well what ideas and things
1: well, take. Socrates gives a really great example, at least for me, very illuminating in the Fido, where he says you can look at any two sticks side by side, and they're never going to be exactly the same length. You know, if you measure them carefully enough, they're always going to be a few millimeters different but you look at the two sticks that are basically the same length and you say they are equal. And so no two things ever are really equal, but they sort of correspond imperfectly to this idea of things being equal. This idea of things being equal that presupposes actual
0: instances of approximate equality. And then, so you have the range from lowly everyday things like sticks all the way to key terms for Plato across his dialogues, the good, justice.
1: But in that case, sticks may be lowly and everyday, but equality isn't. Equality is another foundational and important idea. So even in the lowly and everyday, these ideas are there. Different things we call beautiful in all kinds of different ways, and this is a problem that, of course, fascinates him, approximate imperfectly the idea of beauty the way different pairs of objects approximate the idea of equality. And so in this case, we see early on, you know, people are saying, oh, Socrates, you say that a just ruler is like this, but you can't show me any ruler who's really like that. Socrates' answer is, well, that's because all the societies and people and rulers that we see, they approximate this idea of justice, and they all do it imperfectly. The real mystery and wonder is that we even recognize this idea of justice or equality or beauty when we never see it presented perfectly.
0: So I think we can open this up a little bit more by talking about the Greek word that Plato is using uh, with with its legacy, which is eidos, right? It's not, he doesn't use the word form, the English word form. He uses this term eidos. What does eidos mean in the context?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating word. And it's challenging because one thing about Attic Greek is there's an enormous vocabulary. But unlike the English vocabulary where you just borrow a bunch of words from different languages, you just make a whole bunch of words out of the same roots. So eidos is derived from a word for seeing, for the idea of seeing and vision. So it can mean an image, a thing seen. But already in Homer, and Homer would already be centuries before Plato, Word is already being used for the idea of what we would call form in English, when you're talking about the form of a person, seeing their overall shape, their structure. Like a
0: silhouette.
1: Yeah. I mean, it gets used in geometry too, the idea that... All triangles share the same form. If we would say that in English, that would be a place where eidos gets used. I mean, it's a a fascinating word for this reason. The same root gets into things like idol, which is, of course, an image too. Yeah, and, and icons. Icons, absolutely. Plato chooses this word because of its established association with the visual, which I guess is an interesting metaphor considering how important light is for him as well.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into various analogies that, are, that he's using that are very, very visual um, in their orientation. But I think it, it's also worth talking about how I think you were telling me about this before, that it's later and maybe even immediately later following you know, uh, uh, following Plato and readers of Plato who will also think of the forms – as ideas, right? And certainly the notion that the forms are abstract are in the Platonic text, but what I one of the things I wanted to flag for listeners is that one one tradition that both has positive and critical or negative valences that come out of Plato's forms, Plato's eidos, is what we today call idealism, right? So, you know, this term really comes from German idealism, from the works of Immanuel Kant and Hegel and Fichte and, and many others, right? And then of course, famously, you know, Marx turns Hegel on his head, which means, you know, making the, the dialectic a, a material historical process rather than merely one of bourgeois ideas, right? And this is not to say that, that Hegel is a, a Platonist, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But but I think in talking in terms of legacies and of key terms in modernity that organize debates, the term idealism traces one origin back to Platonic ideas or the Platonic forms.
1: Well, and of course, Hegel is not a Platonist. Kant is not a Platonist. <laughs> but at the same time, both of them in a way think they are because they both feel they are wrestling with the same problems Plato is wrestling with. And I think both of them would imagine in their reading and interpretation of Plato, they see certain parallels between his articulation of these problems and theirs. Certainly, there seems to be a tendency, you see it very much in Republic, for Socrates to assert that these abstract conceptions, let's say things seen with the mind's eye, are in a way more real. They're more real than the things that we see with the visible eye that approximate them. That the idea of the ruler, the form of the ruler, is more real than any actual person who occupies the role of a ruler in society. The form of beauty is more real than any individual beautiful thing and so on. So it's at least easy to understand how people would come to the conclusion that Plato is saying that abstract concepts have a deeper reality than sort of the messy world of individual particulars, the things we interface with every day. You can easily see why Marx might criticize him for that by not understanding, you know, that reality is the ground beneath our feet, the things we can touch and feel, the material conditions.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, I I guess I'll flag without going too deep (laughs) down this rabbit hole that The money on the left position on all this is that that there's no zero sum relation or trade off or or dialectic, you know, between the the ideational, right, Uh, the ideal, the idea, uh, the concept, the the social value um, versus the material, the concrete, the, the sensuous. But we should we should probably get back to the text. So as we've set this up, we've gone from. An early drama where we are kind of unfolding not just um, the limits of any conventional or received wisdom about justice, but also the limits of a purely individualist way of posing the problem, right? Right. So then we're opening up and Socrates is saying, well, you know we can potentially see justice. Justice is so small, it's so little when we're looking at it. Um, Again, vision, right? When we're trying to perceive it in the soul, in the individual, perhaps we will see it written large in the city. And if we kind of turn over the question of the city and maybe imagine different kinds of cities and what kinds of problems come up and what kinds of questions of ordering come up. Maybe we will then be able to see it writ large and then see a a homology. And I would say that he seems to be pretty isometric or isomorphic in his thinking, or we could say univocal, right? Where we're gonna see the same kind of vision and partition and hierarchy of justice in the macro city state as we're going to eventually come back and see in the soul.
1: Well, yes, the only thing Plato would say, of course, he'd say there's actually no connection between the, or direct connection between the just or righteous individual and the just or righteous city. It's that both of them approximate this form of justice. But I think it's also worth emphasizing the reason he has to do this, if this were a screenplay, For me, the inciting incident would be the moment when these two brothers of Plato make it clear they're not happy with him just disproving other notions of justice, showing they're flawed. And they say, basically, I want you to show me that justice is valuable in itself that it benefits somebody, even if there were no human consequences, even if the gods didn't care whether you were just or unjust, if it would still be beneficial on an individual basis to be just, to live a just life. Why is justice good for the individual? Why is injustice bad? And that kind of challenges Socrates to say, well, I can prove it, but to your point... It's not going to be possible if we just focus on the individual. We've got to get this bigger picture of the form. He doesn't say the form, but that's definitely the idea. We understand the pattern of justice. We understand what justice looks like by looking at the community, the larger. Then we can go back to the smaller again, which gives the dialogue this beautiful structure because it's only at the very end. Does Socrates come back to the individual again, talk about the individual, most of it, which is why it ends up being called the Republic. This is a term, it's given to it in Latin, actually, for a term for the the state, the government, the public sphere, because most of it ends up being about politics. It has to be about politics before we can make that move of going back to the individual.
0: And one, uh, one of the other, I think, um, kind of... Um, implicit rhetorical moves being made here is not just simply saying we can't we can't think of this problem only in the micro terms of the soul. We need to see it writ large in a macro realm before we can even pose this question. Uh, I think maybe another way of describing it, but I think it's it's a slightly different it's, it's a slightly different move uh, is what I would consider to be kind of posing a question of metaphysics, which is saying, well, you know, they're going through, you know, they're going through this, this dialogue and they're, try, they're trying to, to try out these early kind of conventional definitions of justice that all seem to be breaking down and turning around and like contradicting themselves and in all these ways. But then from there, the question arises, is justice the thing that we need when we, when a certain, you know, when a doctor is engaged in the art of healing, right? And at first it, it seems like justice is like this thing that, well, no, it's not essential to the art of healing. Justice is this other thing, right? The main thing about any profession and its focused art of practice is, you know, uh, making contracts, healing bodies, prep, prepping, prepping food, right? Like there's these these kind of immediate ends Mm -hmm. whereas justice is a kind of meta end and he opens up this question of well well where does that go is there a professional right is there a practicer of justice right because do we want a practitioner of justice to sail our ships well no we want somebody who's really good at, at sailing the ships Right, So opening up that meta question of, well, justice seems to be involved with everything, but there's no, is there a specialist?
1: Well, and in a way, you could sum up, I think, in two sentences, the primary argument of this whole work, which is that there's, there's sort of two axioms here. One is that in any human society, you need a bunch of different skills. You need to practice a bunch of different arts, from growing food to healing people to piloting ships. People need to learn all these different arts to make society work. That's the first axiom. And the second is that ruling the society, coordinating all of the different people practicing their arts, that itself is one of those arts. That ruling the society is a specialized skill, just like healing people when they're sick or piloting a ship.
0: So that really becomes the 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 focus, or one of the major foci of uh, where we go next. Yeah, right? I mean, he builds it. It takes a while, but maybe we can talk about it. he he sort of works through. Socrates says, "Okay, so let's start thinking about a city, a city that we you know are going to imagine. We're going to imagine in our minds, but." but he he kind of offers a few models. Do you want to walk us through some of those models and
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But first I would just say that already here with this idea and it's it's sort of foreshadowed early in the dialogue it's developed that ruling the city is a skill, at every bit as technical and difficult as any of the other arts you need to learn. You're already seeing hints of what seems like Plato's critique of Athenian democracy, which says that governance is the business Not of everyone, but every man who's not a slave. Every adult man who's not a slave should be involved in the business of government. From the start, he's sort of building that case that governance is a narrow, specialized skill, like everything else, that only a small number of people are going to master. And yeah, along the way, we talk about different kinds of governments. There's one little move there at the start that I think can lead readers astray if you don't know the other platonic dialogues, because... When Socrates starts imagining a just city at the beginning, he imagines a place where everyone is like incredibly humble all the time. They, they just wear the simplest clothes. They eat boring, disgusting food picked from the fields. And right, right at the beginning, his one disciple stops him and says, well, that's not for people. That's a city of pigs. You know, no human being would want to live in a city like that.
0: And that's a that's a city that's predicated on some kind of bare-bone need. Yeah, and what I think it's
1: missed unless you've read the other dialogues is explicitly in the Phido Socrates says that well the problem with non-philosophers is they do need things that aren't essential. Philosophers, they're happy with the life of the mind, but non-philosophers, they like all kinds of delicious food and nice clothing, all kinds of superfluous luxuries, and, he says in the Fido, that's why all wars happen. All wars happen because people don't live within their needs, and frankly, if you, you think about some of the actual historical conflicts, think about Britain's opium wars with China over the tea trade, for example... You can see there's some truth to this idea, that wars happen, or think of how important the spice trade was in the discovery of the New World, or sugar, refined sugar, in the enslavement of people in the Caribbean. So that idea is not expressed in the Republic. It's often the Fido, where he explicitly says, yeah, all wars and conflict happen because non-philosophers want things like good coffee and sugar and tea and opium and so forth. So... I think that's hanging over, and this is just my interpretation, it's hanging over that
0: city of pigs in Republic. Sure, and the the figure of Socrates as a humble, kind of poor, ascetic kind of figure. Yeah, he's a philosopher, he's a
1: philosopher. One fact that's known about Socrates, if we believe not just Plato, but other people, he's supposed to be a stonemason, but he never did his job, so he ended his life deeply in debt. He doesn't care about that shit, and he's implying in Republic, it's said clearly in Fido, but it's implied in Republic that if everyone were like Socrates, well, you'd have that first kind of city he's talking about, the one that the brothers of Plato derisively call the city of pigs, that if everyone was a philosopher, it'd be a whole different story. But once, it's only once Socrates accepts the challenge, okay, no, no one wants to live like that. Let's just accept that people do want nice food and nice clothing. They want superfluous luxuries. That launches us on a new direction. And so the way I interpret that is simply saying, okay, let's not try to be utopian here. Let's not try to imagine a society where everyone is just wonderful. Let's live in the real world. Let's accept that most people are never going to be philosophers they're never going to be like socrates they're never going to live only for the life of the mind how do we make the best society we can accepting that most people aren't worthy of a really good
0: social order and what i'll add to that and maybe there's some daylight between us here but what i'll add to that is that uh, i guess i wouldn't take the i wouldn't take that framing at its word i mean i i think You know, I don't think that, I don't think that there is, there's such thing as a kind of bare bones society of need. And I certainly have no, I don't think it's clear. I think it's quite relative and I think, I don't think there's any clear way to like posit this uh, utopia of humble, humble wisdom poor, humble wisdom, and then, well, okay, so it, because we can't really do that, let's be realistic and do this other thing. I would say, you know, I, I don't think the case has been made even, even for wanting to pine for that society of poor, humble wisdom in the first place. But, but yeah, the tension is there. I'm just pointing out that the... Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and part of the function, though, is to establish another theme of the dialogue, which really is, in a sense, elitism. Not only does Socrates seeming to be argue against the Athenian idea that everyone's equally competent to rule, he's also just arguing that in a more complicated, nuanced way, everyone has special talents. Everyone has their limitations, their talents. The fact that people are different and you can't expect to build a society where everybody is the same is being set up there. Maybe we'll get a few exceptional people. I I still think he does pine for it in that sense, that it's wonderful that some people Can be like Socrates. It's wonderful that some people can be happy only with the things of the mind. Let's use them properly within society. But of course, people are different. And the fact that we are not all the same, that's got to be your starting point in a positive
0: way, not just in a negative way for all
1: political thought.
0: Right. And so here, you know, we're already getting into the tension between on the one hand, uh, the way you know he's or we could say two ways in which he's not not a liberal right and of course he's not a liberal liberalism doesn't exist so he certainly is not a liberal individualist right who is mm-hmm. interested in negative freedoms as the foundation of society or something like that or um, any any kind of liberal conception of a social contract but at the same time he is a an, an avowed, elitist and you know might you you could describe him as a reactionary and would potentially want to you know criticize that and to say that you know there are different ways of acknowledging difference interdependence and organizing a division of labor that wasn't as elitist
1: but this really gets to the first thing though that i do like about plato's vision as i understand it what i really appreciate about it now the received definition of justice is that it is giving everyone what they deserve. And the move that Socrates makes still relatively early in the dialogue is to look at that word what, when you say giving everyone what they deserve. Because, you know, the Thatcherite imagination will say, well, giving people what they deserve usually means giving people the punishment they deserve, right? Locking people up for different crimes. And there's a certain sort of technocratic neoliberalism the people who think guaranteed income will solve everything, that giving people what they deserve is giving them the stuff they deserve, handing out goodies. And what Socrates assumes as he's doing these thought experiments with Glaucon and Adamantus is that when you talk about giving everyone what they deserve, you mean giving them what jobs and what responsibilities they deserve. The definition of justice that he begins to propose is that it's the proper allocation of responsibility. He said very early on, even when we were in the dramatic prologue, Socrates has said that every art, whatever you learn, whether it's piloting a ship or healing people or running a state, you're not taking care of yourself, you're taking care of someone else. In fact, usually a very narrowly focused someone else, because you learn a very narrowly focused economic specialization. So the beginning, the vision of the city he begins to unfold is where you have all these people, everyone with a job and everyone with the right job for who they are, all taking care of each other in this sort of complicated web of interdependence, which to me is why you say he's not a liberal, because he does accept dependence and mutual need and obligation it's baked into the system from the start and it's not even a bad thing it's not like certain enlightenment philosophers like Rousseau who say be better we were all living in the wilderness separately but now we have to live together no it's a positive good that each one of us couldn't survive for a moment without each other that we all need each other. We depend on each other. And so justice, and this is one thing I love about the Republic, his definition of justice is it's the best coordination of everyone needing and caring for each other.
0: Right. And it also is, even if it has its elitist and maybe, yeah, criticizable, uh, univocal hierarchical elements um, I agree with you. I think that all those impulses. Are there. There's a there's a green New Deal <laughs> reading of the Republic, and and there's a Stalinism reading of the Republic. And I think you know both. There's a tension there. But I will say this as well. It's not a carceral state either, right? So one of going you know we're spending a lot of time at the beginning. I think that's I think that's appropriate. One of the moves that happens at the beginning as well is in terms of pondering this question of what, what everyone deserves. One of the, one of the propositions is, well, you know, friends should be, should get benefits and, (laughs) and enemies uh, should be punished, right? Um, And one of the, one of the responses to this that Socrates has is, well, you know, when we treat, when, when, you know, misbehaving horses, when we treat them badly, right, when we, mm-hmm. when we treat them even more badly, does that tend to make them better or worse? And, well, the, the obvious answer is worse, right? And this is, I think this is, a, this is an anti, I mean, there can be something coercive about this logic, too. Mm-hmm. But I think in the, in the context of the text, this is him pushing against any kind of punishing punishment or, you know, punitive a uh, foundation for order, but rather it's a, a cultivating one. Now, if you if you're somebody who reads Michel Foucault and you're uh, attuned to his critique of what's called modern biopolitics, and you can critique an order not not to say that Foucault is talking about this order, but one could critique an order for being cult a, a cultivating one. It doesn't have to be punishing in order to be, you know, potentially unjust or repressive. But just as an aside. Um, I wanted to mark that and say that at least in, I think in the context of what he's up to, he's trying to get away from a penal system.
1: Yeah, I think that Socrates' as Plato presents him is not only excluding just, again, the, the punitive idea of justice, but also sort of an exclusionary idea of justice. This is one place where there are certain analogies between his critique of Athenian democracy versus a critique you could make of modern neoliberal democracy that he seems to be critiquing a game, what I would call a Thatcherate idea that if people aren't useful to society, well, that's their problem. I think that Republic is framed from the idea that it is the point of any society, the goal of justice to find uses for people, to find value that they have. There are even analogies to Greek thinking about nature at the time. There's the idea that nature, everything in nature has a purpose. Well, it's the same in any good society. Everyone has a gift. Everyone has a talent. And if they're unemployed, they don't have like an outlet for their talents. That's not their failure. It's the failure of society to find a use for their talent to achieve, again, justice, which is giving
0: everyone the responsibilities they deserve. So I want us to keep keep teasing out what's going on in the text from where we are sort of moving into the middle. But I just want to flag really quickly is... I don't know, it's a refrain and we'll sort of, it'll pay off later. I think in a, a second episode, we'll, we'll take this on in, in a kind of deep, uh, confounding way. But I just, I want to flag something, which is on the one hand, he has, as you're saying, this text has a commitment to finding a place for everyone and making them, you know, be their best selves in, in a way that, um you know that that yeah o- honors what what their goals are. On the other hand, even though there's a kind of non-zero sum, non-liberal political philosophy and aim here, he has certain metaphysical commitments and ways of posing problems that end up introducing all of these zero-sum trade-offs and um <laughs> kind of flim flamming between the univocal and the equivocal that I would say, well, you know, I guess at worst undercuts this vision. Um, at best it it suggests that we have to we have to sort of move through you know apathetically, we have to move through these paradoxes of these zero-sum metaphysics in order to in order to realize this. You know what i when i'm you know in a silly way calling this green new deal uh vision but i want let's put a pin in that we're just Mm -hmm. teasing we're teasing here pin in let's let's talk about how he moves from the city of pigs that i that the kind of you know the philosopher's ideal city but not everyone can be such a great humble philosopher so let's get real and build this start to imagine this luxurious city um but that has but that is constructed in such a way that exhibits the features of justice, the patterns of justice, the form of justice, so wh- how does he start to do this
1: right well the moment the moment I mean the whole city of pigs things ends very quickly. I believe that Socrates suggests the city they're now talking about is the fevered city, suggesting <laughs> that there's something. <laughs> unhealthy about the injection of all these unnecessary luxuries into the Constitution. This is where you get that very zero-sum vision you mentioned earlier, where he says that, well, once our city needs all these luxuries, there are going to be wars. We're going to have to be fighting other city-states and enslaving their people and taking (laughs) land from them and things like that. And it's inevitable, but... It's inevitable once you accept that people aren't just happy with enough to eat Once you accept that we live in the world where the opium wars happened or the Atlantic triangular trade happened, all of these terrible things are going to happen once we accept the fallenness of human nature. But still, even in such a a fallen society, such a flawed society, we can find a form of justice. And I know you want to go in order, but I really do see in this part, there's already forming something that he doesn't articulate so directly until closer to the end, he's building towards the idea that then if you're not going to have a society where everyone is a philosopher, the philosophers should be in charge. This is the platonic idea of the philosopher king. It's enunciated explicitly a little bit later when Socrates says you're never going to have a good political order unless philosophers can be kings or kings can be philosophers. But it's there from the start as the fevered city thought experiment begins. How are we going to give everyone the right job and who should have that difficult job of ruling?
0: And the philosophers are going to guard and they are going to rule this ideal city.
1: Yeah, he doesn't call them philosophers. He calls them guardians. It's pretty clear that they're also philosophers at the end when he says that philosophers have to be kings, but he talks a lot about this guardian class. And maybe it's worth mentioning here that another thing that Plato will know that his contemporaries have on their mind is they'll know that there is a very well-known alternative to Athenian society, which is that of Sparta. Athens' great rival. The Spartan constitution is utterly different from the Athenian one. One unfavorable classicist said that the difference between living in Athens versus Sparta is living in San Francisco versus living in Pyongyang. So maybe, (laughs) uh, yeah, Plato and, and, and other students of Socrates seem to be a bit more sympathetic to Sparta than to compare it to North Korea, but nevertheless, it's an undemocratic society ruled by an austere warrior aristocracy. So when the idea of the Guardians emerges, that we're going to have this small class of rulers who are also the only people who bear arms within the state, already everyone's going to say, "Yeah, Sparta, that's a real-life example that approximates this idea.
0: Maybe, too, we can say a little bit more. I know you've you've informed me about um, the distinct nature of Athenian democracy you know've we've, we've We've mentioned it here and there, but it's you know it's not certainly i mean you know we can argue whether uh, the contemporary United States is actually a democracy, right i mean the, the, these, these are bigger questions, but what? What kinds of procedures? What was the? What were the spaces of democracy like in Plato's Athens? Right, it's a, it's a, it's a different world. It's a different picture than what we think of when we think of the word democracy. Very much so. Even though I think we
1: see later on when Plato talks about the values of democratic society, a lot of it does. There are analogies to post-war United States. This is something I explain. Four times a year when I teach the same goddamn class over and over again, (laughs) I I always talk to my students about this. So by this point, I have it down. I say that on one level, Athenian democracy may seem more exclusionary than the current U.S. system because there's no pretense of enfranchising women, for example. All Athenian women aren't involved in the system. A third of the adult population are slaves. There's no attempt to include them. So I'll say to my students that from one point of view, you know, so-called democratic Athens sounds more like the antebellum South, right? A small (laughs) minority of enfranchised people with all of these people locked out. It's more like Mississippi in 1850. That said, though, there is one difference, which certainly for the men of Athens, those who were empowered, made it feel much more empowering than the post-war United States does for someone who has the franchise now. That's because those, say, 35,000 non-slave men, they weren't just voters the way someone might be in, you know, pre-Civil War South. They were really legislators for so many important decisions. It wasn't a matter of electing some representative. When people would vote and pass laws, it was first come, first served, At the Legislative Assembly, people would just crowd in there. So I always say to my students, it's not so much there were only 35,000 voters. That sounds very exclusionary. There were 35,000 members of Congress slash judges, because every one of those Athenian men had the power of a member of Congress in the United States or a judge, because they're both judge and jury in the trial. So for the men of Athens who did have the franchise, it felt incredibly empowering. And certainly what Athenian aristocrats, and this includes Plato and his family, the old money, the old families, what they noticed was not how many people were excluded. So they didn't think of it as an exclusionary system. They thought of it as really inclusive because it included really poor people, people from bad families. And democracy for them was really poorocracy the rule of the poor the rule of the mob which is another sort of strain i think we see in
0: plato's critique of athenian democracy so he's he's playing with the minds right of his audience here and giving us what what would you say uh, i mean it's in this dialogue it's it's yeah it's it's critical of athenian democracy democracy is part of this kind of we'll get there but this it's a slippery slope to tyranny, essentially. But is he giving, uh, I mean, so what's the relationship between the vision of Sparta versus this second city, right? The the luxurious city, which becomes the ideal city, but but as a fallen one, what's the relationship then between Sparta and this ideal city? The most obvious one is the one we mentioned. That in Sparta, there are even
1: fewer citizens than in Athens. There's an enormous population of slaves. The Spartan citizens are a small minority. They're the only ones who can have weapons because you don't want to arm the slaves. And they're the sort of the, the professional warrior class and rulers. So even though Plato really explicitly rejects later on or Socrates criticizes the way the Spartan citizens treat the slaves. He doesn't like the fact that they don't even pretend to be ruling for the benefit of the slaves. That idea that your leaders are also the warrior class, that's there in the guardians. But I also see in certain other elements, there are things that can seem very strange in the dialogue that make more sense if you know about Sparta. Like there's a horrifying part where Socrates says that in this city, they're imagining this city in speech That when children are born, you decide whether you're going to let them live or not. That you can kill children at birth, sort of practice this brutal eugenic policy. And Setting aside whether Socrates is serious about this, because he he loves his irony. He said, be aware of lies. This is going to be familiar because it's something the Spartans actually do. So all of these moves are going to hit differently because we're thinking of Sparta. I'd even argue that the Spartan treatment of money and the Spartan policies about money and preventing the accumulation of money are on Plato's mind in another way in this dialogue. So there are lots of echoes and references to Sparta throughout this. In fact, well, later Socrates explicitly says, Sparta's not a good government. The Spartan system is not good, but it's a closer approximation to the government he's thinking of than any other he knows of.
0: So I think this is a good place to wrap up, but I want to do a little bit of summarizing and kind of pointing us toward our next episode, right? So setting up you know, the problem of justice as a form, moving from the micro problem that can't be solved without reference to it writ large at the macro level, um, constructing this ideal society, which is in, in a sense fallen, um, but more realistic, and, um, and it, it implying a certain kind of hierarchical order of interdependence that is trying to include and find places for everybody, and it being um, essentially hierarchically organized around this particular class of guardians, which we learn are really philosophers. So. What I want us to talk about next time, I just want to tee up a few things, and I'm sure we'll think of more things to say, is so much time is spent in this dialogue to, to think about how do you create a guardian, right? How do you train a guardian? Essentially, how do you educate one into being? How do you cultivate one into being, whether it's in terms of political structures or educational structures and you know the the, the role of poetry or not, <laughs> the role of various kinds of trainings, right? So we we need to talk about well what what are the stakes of this this, this fabulation this all these ideas about how you get a guardian and what does that mean right what does that mean for plato or what do we think it might mean i want us to start to tease out which we've been like kind of sprinkling about really have been avoiding like this question of money and then the exciting new twist for us is that it turns out that the modern translations of words that appear as money in the various versions are actually surprise liberal <laughs> like super liberal and have had this kind of liberal translation interpretation of what's going on in the text so i think i want to try to figure out what's happening with money in relationship to the guardians, but also in relationship to justice and these bigger macro questions. And, um, and then as we're unpacking all this, I, I think I ultimately want us to dig into what we keep promising to talk about, which is Plato's what seems to us to be pretty entrenched univocal metaphysics, which are not the same as modern univocal metaphysics, but certainly certainly influence them and certainly have their own problematic logics that we want to get at. Do you have any things you want to kind of just close us out with or add add to the pile or add to the agenda for next time?
1: I think that sums it up really well. I think that there are more things to note that I think are interesting, worthy of redeeming Plato, but I do think we're getting closer and closer to the habits of thought that he must be held accountable for the unhelpful ways of thinking that really do have a problematic legacy in the present day. So I think we're making great progress.
0: Well, thanks so much. This is so fun. I'm looking forward to our next episode.
1: Awesome. See you soon.